Happy Advent. My name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team. And I want to welcome those of you who are watching online as well. Um, we're starting a new series today for the next four weeks through this Advent season called Joy to the World. And uh, if you're wondering what that question mark's about, it, it's pretty easy to answer uh, just by asking this question. How's your year been? <laughs> been pretty great, right? Like just one awesome thing after another. Um, no, I, I don't think that's the case. Um, I really resonated with this picture I saw of a guy who decorated for Halloween. Uh, he said, 2020, this is the scariest thing I could think of. He just has the, you know, letters or the numbers out there, 2020. And it's, uh, it is, in fact, been a really scary year. And so I don't actually even need to go into the things that I would maybe be tempted to go into for the next few minutes to try to convince you that, you know, sometimes life's hard and because you know, <laughs> Sometimes life is hard. I don't need to give you all the stats. I don't need to give you all the stories. We just know that this has been a very difficult year. And so the, the big question of this series over these next four weeks is this. How can there be joy to the world when the world is like this? When the world's like this one, filled with brokenness and disease and fear and anxiety, and depression, and death, and disappointment, and on, and on, and on. How, how can there be joy to the world in this world, in a world like this? That's what we're going to try to answer, right? We just sang that song, Joy to the World. Well, how can we sing that with any real conviction when we're really hurting, when we're really struggling? That's what this series is going to be about. Now, when it comes to the idea of joy, a lot of Christians make what I think is too big of a distinction between joy and happiness. A lot of times people want to draw a really bright line between joy and happiness, as if joy is kind of this isolated thing here, and happiness is this isolated thing here, right? And a lot of times, maybe, have you heard of, of it described this way, where it's the idea of, hey, you know, happiness, well, that's just like fleeting and superficial and lame and not that deep, but joy, joy is like really serious and really substantial and it really lasts, right? And, and have, you, have you heard this kind of distinction made? Um, and and in, in one sense, it is a helpful distinction because there, there is a difference between the kind of flimsy happiness that we often think of and the substantial kind of joy that we especially believe the Christian life offers. But what I actually think is confusing about this is as I went and looked up in the dictionary joy. And in the definition of joy in the dictionary, you find the word happiness. And then I went and looked up the word happiness in the dictionary. And in the definition of happiness, you find the word joy. So it's like, is this really so different? And, and, and so here's how we're going to try to approach it in this series, is rather than seeing these as two really distinct circles, we're going to see these as kind of overlapping circles. And that much of the time, what, what we mean when we talk about joy and happiness is kind of the same thing. It's the things that give us real sense of delight, real sense of pleasure, real sense of enjoyment. It's meaningful, it's sweet, it's beautiful. It's the kind of stuff we go, oh, I'm so glad that I live in this world that God has made. God, thank you. And joy oftentimes feels like happiness. Now, there are times when we can be happy, but not joyful. Right, this is what you might just call shallow satisfaction, right? A song you like comes on the radio. You go, oh, I, I, I feel happy about that, right? Someone offers you a cookie. I mean, that, 
that's a good deal. Like, that's great. But, but no one's going, oh, man, my life's forever changed. I got a cookie, right? Unless it's like really like a crumble cookie maybe or something. I don't know. But, but there's, there's just kind of, you know, there's, there's the, you know, someone was nice to you. Someone said hi, it, right? There's, there's these things that make life meaningful and make life good, but you can be happy and not necessarily be joyful. On the other hand, we know this, that there's times when we can be joyful, but not necessarily happy. We can be suffering, we can experience loss, grief, disappointment, unmet expectations, real sorrow, we can be lamenting, we can be grieving, and yet in the midst of that, we can still have a a rooted, deep, real sense of joy. Now, I think it's probably possible for anyone to have the joy without happiness, but it's especially possible for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Because we, at the root of our faith, have a God who's joyful and a promise of eternal life with Christ in the kingdom to come, and that should make us joyful no matter what circumstance we experience. And so we could call that kind of joy without happiness, we could call that kind of sacred satisfaction. And I like this word sacred. I'm, I'm borrowing it from uh, Arnold Reese. Arnold's one of our uh, leaders. He leads our uh, high school ministry, and I'd sent out to some of our pastors, I said, hey, uh, send me what do you think about the difference and the commonalities between happiness and joy? Here's what Arnold said. He said, when we talk of happiness, we may indeed at times be talking about the biblical idea of joy, but we usually reserve language about joy for something deeper, more remarkable, more sacred, more powerful, or more momentous. Can you imagine if you wrote emails as beautiful as Arnold does? And I was like, that's just spectacular. I don't know how long he worked on that, but that was really great. He had no idea I was going to use it in the sermon today. So uh, careful next time, Arnold. But anyway, um, so, so I just, I love that idea of deeper, remarkable, sacred, powerful, momentous. There is that kind of joy available. So, so here's what this series is going to be, is we're going to focus on kind of the, the left two-thirds of that picture. Today, we're going to really look at a picture of where joy and happiness kind of overlap and specifically that joy and happiness overlap in God. But in the next few weeks, we're going to look at really how is it that you can have joy even if your circumstances are bad? How can you have joy even if things are really making it where it's difficult to be happy? So that's where we're going to go over these next weeks. Now today, I want to kind of kick off our our thoughts about today with this question. How happy and joyful do you think God is? How happy and joyful do you think God is? See, my my guess is that a lot of us would think that God would be on that joyful but not happy side, right? We think God would be very, he'd be so serious, right? And he'd be so stoic that it would be like, you know, probably in heaven he's thinking, I've got the joy, 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 joy (laughs) down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? It's so deep down in my heart. Like that, that's kind of how we imagine God is that, yeah, God's joyful because he's in charge of everything and ultimately it's all going to work out, but he's probably not happy. Like if you just walked into his office, he probably wouldn't greet you with a smile. That's how a lot of times we think about it. But here's the big idea that I want to show you from the scriptures today is that our joy begins with God's joy. Our ability to have joy that feels happy and our ability to have joy that transcends circumstances when we feel unhappy, our ability to have joy, our ability to stay uh, effervescent in the face of trials comes from God's joy, from God's delight, from God's pleasure. 
And so I want to just paint a couple of pictures together, one from Zephaniah and another from the New Testament, that give us a picture of this joyful God. I want you to see and I want you to feel that we have a God who is very happy. He's very joyful. And he's eager that his joy would become our joy. So the first picture we want to find is in that passage we read in Zephaniah chapter 3. Now, uh, normally we just are working through a book of the Bible, and so the context is a little bit more in front of us automatically, uh, but that's not the case here. We're just looking at these few verses from Zephaniah chapter 3. And so to give you some context, in Zephaniah 3, verses 1 to 8, basically what you have is that God is being like a good father. He is disciplining his wayward kids. The people of Israel have been rebellious, they've been idolatrous, and so God has, has uh, disciplined them. He's put them in time out. He's given them a loving spanking, and he has just made things where they've gone, oh gosh, yes, we, we need the Lord. And so in verses 9 through 13, they come back to the Lord. Uh, they begin to worship God again. They begin to put aside the idols. They begin to trust in him, to seek refuge in the name of the Lord, it says in verse 12. And what's the response to that? What should they do in light of this new thing? Look at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Because their relationship with God is restored, they should look at those words. Sing aloud, shout, rejoice, exult. Those are joyful, happy, delightful words, aren't they? Well, why? Why should they do those things? Well, look at verse 15. Here's why, because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Why should you rejoice? Because as the people of God, your sins have been forgiven. Your enemies don't have any ultimate power, and God is in your midst. Isn't that what we celebrate every Advent? Emmanuel, God with us. If God is with us, then we should be able to rejoice, and we should be able to shout, and be able to sing. And here's what it says in verse 16, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God, here it is again, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And then I just love these next few phrases. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It's interesting, just even as I read those phrases, I can't read them and not smile. Like th th this idea that God will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you with his love. He'll exult over you, not just with singing, but with loud singing. That, that's the way God feels toward us. So, so our joy, our ability to shout and sing and exult in God begins with realizing that God's in our midst and that he's rejoicing over us. Judgment's gone, God is here, and he's really happy. When I read this passage, I can't help but think of a time about 13 years ago. We had an incredible weekend, uh, one weekend in, um, in Ohio. Uh, we were uh, celebrating Abby's, she's my oldest, she's 14 now, but we were celebrating her first birthday. 
So that was one day, her, her first birthday. The next day was um, my wife's cousin's uh, rehearsal dinner for her wedding, and the day after that was the wedding, right? So it was like this big trip, big exciting thing. And uh, we had all this great time with, uh, with celebrating Abby's birthday. And then the next day, we went to the rehearsal dinner. And at the rehearsal dinner, um, everything went well for a while. We were having a lot of fun. We were having a lot of great stuff. But, but when you have a one-year-old, right, there's like a time limit on how fun things can be. And um, in our family, we kind of make up Berenstein Bears titles. So that day was the Berenstein Bears and too much rehearsal dinner. Um, and so after a little while, one-year-old Abby melted down, just totally melted down, screaming, crying, you know, blubbering, you know, the way one-year-olds do when they just, they can't contain it anymore. And we tried everything. We tried, you know, holding her and rocking her. We tried, you know, pushing her in a stroller. We tried taking her outside. We tried bouncing up and down. We just tried everything and nothing was working. She was inconsolable. And so, you know, it was Molly's side of the family wedding, and so I said, you know what, this is a special time for you. Why don't I, I'll take Abby home and uh, see if at least I can get her out of your hair and out of your way. And so uh, I put her on my shoulder and got a picture, not of that exact moment, but of that weekend. Who's that guy holding her? <laughs> But that's, that's Abby. The name Abby, just so you know, means father's joy. And so I put her screaming in the car seat. And she screamed and she screamed. And I tried going, honey, it's okay. And I tried playing the radio because sometimes she would respond well to music. Nothing was working. So I turned the radio off and I just started to sing. I don't even know what I sang. But as she began to hear the sound of my voice, she finally calmed down. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. See, see and, and here's the thing, is, is up to that point, all Abby had done was ruin our night. <laughs> right? Like, all it was was cost. And yet I was delighted to sing over her because she's her father's joy. And in Christ, we're all our father's joy. And our joy begins with his joy. That's an incredible picture of the God who sings with joy. But I can't just look at the God who sings with joy. I also want us to look at the God who runs with joy. So turn in your Bible to the book of Luke. It's the third book in your New Testament. You're going to want to follow along with this, I think. So uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And Luke chapter 15 is an incredible series of pictures of the heart of God. And it begins in verse 1, uh, describing the scene. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners. you got to say that with a sneer. This man receives sinners 
and eats with them. So get this, get the scene before Jesus tells these stories. Jesus is surrounded by people. There are people who are tax collectors and sinners. These are the despised. These are the broken. These are the wicked. These are the icky. And there's also these Pharisees and scribes nearby. These people that seem to have it all together. These people that seem good and righteous. At least that's what people think. And the righteous people are upset that Jesus is not turned off by all of these unrighteous people. They think if he was really holy, he would want these dirty, sick, weak, sinful, evil people away from him. And not only would he want them away from him, but there's no way he would eat with them, but instead that's what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus then tells a series of stories to describe the heart that he has. It's the heart of God. The first one, he describes a man. He tells this story. He says, a man had a hundred sheep. Maybe you've heard this story. man had a hundred sheep, and there were 99 who were doing great, and there was one who wandered away. And so what did this good shepherd do? He left the 99, and he pursued the one. He chased it down. He found it. And he brought it back, and he gathered together friends and neighbors and said, hey, everybody, let's rejoice. Let's have a party. Look what it says in verse 6. He called together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Then Jesus says this in verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Repenting is to turn around, to turn from your sin. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. More joy in heaven. See, I think when we hear Jesus say that, what we imagine is that there's these angels and these uh, people who have died who uh, are in Christ, and and they're watching, and and when the repentance happens, it's like, right? They start the wave, and it's like there's all this joy in heaven over this sinner who repents. But what we learn in the next story is actually whose joy it really is. See, the next story, Jesus describes a woman who's lost these 10 silver coins. They were very important to her, probably coins related to her marriage, like losing a wedding ring. And she has these 10 coins, and she's lost one of them. And so she searches the house high and low. She clears everything out, and she finds the lost coin. And then she calls her friends and her neighbors and says, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I lost. And then look at this in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now think about this for a moment. We can just skip right over this because of our assumptions. Our assumption is the joy is in this multitude of heaven who's rejoicing as they kind of watch a sinner repent. But look what it says in verse 10. There is joy before the angels of God. There's joy, what is it saying? In front of the angels of God. Whose joy is this? It's God's joy. See, the angels, they're they're focused on God. And there's joy in the presence of the angels. More joy in heaven. But it isn't just the angels' joy, it's God's joy. It's God's delight, it's God's heart. Our joy begins with God's joy. But then he tells another story, one of the most famous in the Bible, to describe the joyful heart of God. It begins this way. There was a man who had two sons. The father in this story represents God. There's a younger brother, and there's an older brother. The younger brother we know as the prodigal son. 
because the, the word prodigal, just so you know, it comes from the King James. It, there's a place in here where it talks about that he, he took all the wealth that he'd gotten after he told his father, I wish you were dead, give me my inheritance now. And his father amazingly does it. And he heads off to Vegas. He'd seen something about how what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But he goes off to Vegas and he, it says he went to a faraway land and he squandered the money in reckless living. And that word reckless, recklessly extravagant, is the King James uses the word prodigal. That's what prodigal means. It just means recklessly extravagant. So this younger son goes and squanders it all in prodigal, recklessly extravagant living, while the older son stays home, does the right thing, you know, stays close, works hard every day. The younger son is off being reckless, being extravagant, being prodigal. But what we see in this story is that the true prodigal in the story is not the son, it's actually the father. See, the day comes like it inevitably does when you squander into a life of sin where the boy hits rock bottom. Right? This always eventually happens. Maybe you're not there yet, but if you're walking away from God and you're living for yourself, it's coming. And it came for him. And it came for him one day when he was there at a place that no Jewish boy would have imagined himself to end up, which was they're feeding pigs, right? There's not an animal that is more unclean to Jews than pigs, and the boy is sitting there, and he's feeding the pigs, and he's not only feeding the pigs, but he's so hungry because he's so destitute that he's actually longing to eat the food that the pigs are eating. Now, what do pigs eat? Anything, anything, right? So, so the worst food you could ever have in the dirtiest place you could ever have it, and he's so hungry, he wishes he could have that, but he can't. He's hit rock bottom. And it says in this beautiful phrase in Luke 15, and he came to his senses. And he thought, oh my goodness, this is incredible. I could go home, and it, I'll, I'll never be accepted again as a son, but I could go home and I could work for my father as one of his hired workers, right? And maybe I could work for him, and, and he could begin to pay me, and, and eventually I could pay back all the money that I, that I wasted. So he develops this plan. He actually begins to think about this speech, and his speech just goes like this. He goes, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son Make me one of your hired servants. And so he begins to walk back from this long way. And I just imagine him walking and going, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please make me one of your hired servants. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Please make me one of your hired servants. And he begins to come home. And we see the joy in heaven over one sinner who repents in verse 20. Look at it. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You get the impression here that the father is regularly scanning the horizon, wondering, is this the day? Is this the day he might return? And he sees him a long way off, and what does it say? He felt compassion, and he ran. Now get this, get this. Wealthy, land-owning patriarchs did not run. 
right? They would wear robes, and in order to run in a long robe, he, you'd have to kind of hike up the bottom of the robe in order to run. And when you did that, something incredibly shameful happened, which was that people saw your bare legs. Right, this is how it was in that culture, not as much that way today. But, but here, here's, here's the thing. This boy who wished his father was dead, who wasted his inheritance, who sinned against heaven and against his father, this boy deserved to come back in shame. But instead, the father took his shame, and he ran. And what does he do after he runs? He embraced him and kissed him, not after he'd had a bath, but while he still smelled and tasted like pig. He loves him. And the son said to him, here comes the memorized speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And yet before he can finish the speech, verse 22 says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Celebration's a term of joy, isn't it? And so he doesn't get leftovers. He doesn't get to earn his way back as a hired servant. He gets to be a son and a celebrated son. You know, there's one other place where the word robe is used in the New Testament. Did you notice? Bring the best robe. Put a ring on his hand, shoes. There's one other place in the, New Test in, in the book of Luke where the word robe is used. You know what it is? It's when the soldiers put a purple robe on Jesus and a crown of thorns on his head. They spit on him. They mocked him. And they beat him. We get the robe of celebration because Jesus took the robe of shame. Who's the prodigal in this story? Who's the one whose love is recklessly extravagant? It's the Father. It's God. This is the picture of joy. We have a God who rejoices over us with singing, who quiets us with his love, and who sees us while we're a long way off, and he comes, and he runs, and he embraces, and he kisses, and he welcomes, and he celebrates. That's the heart of God. That's where our joy begins. Here's some takeaways. God's joy actually feels like joy. Get this, God is not just kind of keeping you at arm's length, going, yeah, I guess I love you. He is welcoming you. He's enveloping you with his strong arms. And notice, God's joy is bigger than our sin. You might be thinking today, well, I'm at rock bottom, and God couldn't even see me. God couldn't find me. God couldn't love me. God couldn't take joy in me. False. God's joy is bigger than your sin. And get this, God's joy heats up when we repent and turn to him. God always loves us, but the, the time when we get the, the brightest smile from God, it's not when we're perfect, it's when we're repentant. See, we think there's no way God could have affection for me, there's no way God could take pleasure in me because I've blown it. Okay, you've blown it, 
But what you see here is the joy in heaven is over a sinner who repents, who admits they blow it, who turn back to him and who put their trust in Christ. Listen, friends, family, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, our Father delights in us. And our hope for joy, the joy that feels like joy when it's going really good, and the joy that's deep and substantial even when it's going really bad, that joy begins with God's joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your heart for us is so warm. Thank you that at our worst, you keep looking for us. You keep coming after us. You keep singing over us. And God, we ask now for the gift by your spirit of repentance that we would turn from lesser joys, that we would turn from the things that we think will bring joy, that at best sometimes bring happiness. And God, would you help us repent? Would you help us turn? Would you help us find that the deepest, strongest, brightest, warmest joy we could experience is found in you? We pray in the name of Jesus.